Genesis chapter 39. We're going to read the whole chapter. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favour in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field, so that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie to me, to, to, into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there... He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Amen. Well, thank you very much, James. And uh, let's turn... uh,
keep your Bibles open there, and uh, you'll see on the back of the service sheet um, what is intended to be an egg timer. I'll explain that later. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we pray that as we tackle this, it's not an easy chapter, and uh, it's uh, awfully familiar perhaps, but what's it about? How do we apply it? We pray that you would help us do that uh, properly and effectively. And, and help, Lord, will you to raise our affections for what Joseph experienced, what Christ experienced, and what it means to know that you are with us in a whole range of circumstances of life. And we ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, with the guest service last Sunday night, um, let me take a few minutes to navigate us back into this uh, wonderful section of the Bible. The section we're looking at is Genesis 37 through 50. What is the book of Genesis about? It is the book about the beginning of the history of the people of God. What is this section of Genesis about? Well, look at chapter 37, verse 1. That's the uh, section heading. Chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, for sure, Joseph is the main character in Genesis 37 to 50, which is why most commentaries or sermon series on this section are called the life of Joseph. And it is about the life of Joseph, but just as much about the continued history of the people of God. Not just Joseph, but Joseph's brothers. All 12 sons of Jacob, or Israel. All 12 sons who would become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now Genesis 37, part 1, introduces us to Joseph and his brothers. And uh, the narrative uh, tells us that on account of his dreams, Joseph's dreams, his brothers sell him to slave traders. Chapter 37 ends with Joseph being sold by the Midianites to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. Two big lessons in chapter 37. First, that Joseph was God's Chosen Savior and Lord. Joseph was God's man chosen to save God's people and to be the one before whom God's people would bow down as their Lord. And if you see in that, I pointed to a picture of the Lord Jesus. You're right. We're meant to. Not because this is a well-constructed story, where everything points to Jesus, simply because through salvation history, again and again and again, God foreshadowed Christ by showing us that God was always going to raise up one man who would save his people and before whom they will bow. Second lesson in chapter 37 is that, God's, is that Joseph's brothers are wicked men. They show us the sinful heart of Humanity, they reveal our own sinful hearts. They show us, some of us perhaps, what it means to reject the one who will save us. For those of us who are believers, we'll not look on from a distance. 
we'll find our hearts exposed like them in the narrative chapters that follow, and we will be brought to our knees before our Lord. That's chapter 37, part 1. And all your instincts as a preacher, all your instincts as a listener, all your instincts as a storyteller, and I go from chapter 37 to chapter 39. I mean, just look at the end of chapter 37, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And you're just waiting to get a 39, verse 1. Joseph had been brought to Egypt to Potiphar. And we get chapter 38, the life of Judah, one of Joseph's brothers. Now, the events described in chapter 38 take place over a lengthy period of time and parallel the, the, the kind of rest of the book, chapters 39 onwards, as Joseph grew up in Egypt, 38 is what happened to his brother Judah at a similar time. And when you read chapter 38, as we did two weeks ago, and looked at it, it's sordid stuff. You want to get on with Joseph and the story. We're stuck with Judah, part of the special family of God. And what a mess his life was. What do we learn from chapter 38? Well, we learn that as God's people, when we turn from him, what a terrible mess we can get into. We learn of the extraordinary working of God's grace to bring us back, and we learn of the shocking grace of God, not only to bring us back, as he did with Judah, but to overlook our sin, as he overlooked Judah's sin, and gave him the child of his heart, And not only that, continued his family line, a line that would lead to King David, a line that would lead to Jesus. What a sobering and wonderful and shocking chapter 38 is. Shocking as to the extent of sin, even more shocking and humbling at the extent of God's mercy and uh, grace. One of the great things about studying the Old Testament is that it dispels for us any notions of the softness of God or of Jesus Christ. That's not to dispel the notions of the extravagant love and affection of God. But it's shocking, His grace and His mercy. And then we're back in chapter 39, back with Joseph in Potiphar's house. Now you'll see on the back of the service sheet uh, a diagram. I did uh, try it out in one of the elders earlier, what does it look like? Does it, I even gave him a clue. I said, does it look like an egg timer? And he said, no, it looks like a Christmas cracker. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a good illustration of, 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 of preaching or applying the Bible. You don't get to Jesus at the end. You get to Jesus in the middle, and then you apply it through the Spirit of Jesus who lives in us. That's the, the principle here. Now, let's... Um, consider first what the narrative has to teach us about Joseph. Remember who he is. He is God's man. He is God's man who will be the savior of God's people and before whom they will bow down as their Lord. And God was with his chosen man. 
Let's read the first section down to the middle of verse 6. Joseph had been brought to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And as the narrative goes on, Joseph is put in charge of his master's house. Verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. The key phrase is, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with his chosen man. Now, the period of time these verses cover would have been perhaps as much as 10 years. Joseph sold into slavery as a 16, 17-year-old, probably, becomes the chief slave in Potiphar's house, perhaps in his mid to late 20s. Now, that's a really helpful perspective for us when you read a phrase like, the Lord was with him. It's slow. It's hardly visible. The Lord was with him. And Joseph must have thought many times, where is the Lord? The Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph, putting his chosen man into a position of responsibility. We can, I think, assume that Joseph worked hard. I mean, it's not that... Uh, in spite of who he was. It's like Daniel. Uh, they worked hard. They were diligent. They were distinctive. They were godly. They were industrious. They served their master. And God was with him. But then God's man faces temptation. Second half of verse 6 down to verse 12. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I then do this wickedness and sin? Against God. That's striking, that word God, isn't it? Yes, against his master, but against God. And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now think on the persuasive power of the temptation. Joseph, as a teenager, sold into slavery by his own family. He came to Egypt at the bottom rank. He would not even have understood the language. When he started in Potiphar's household, 
He had no rank or station. He was the bottom rung. No prospects of marriage, no prospects of freedom, no prospect of ever seeing his dad again. That's reality. That's what he felt. And yet the Lord was with him. And over years and years of slavery, he climbed the ladder as a slave, learned the language, gained a reputation, until the point, probably in his late 20s, 10 years on, that he's given a position over all the other slaves. And then Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph, appealing to his pride, his loneliness, confirmation perhaps that everything was going his way, please her and perhaps he might win his freedom. Alongside all of this, the sexual temptation especially as he found he was alone in the house with her and she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Joseph is tempted, but he resisted. He refused her advances. Day after day, he would not listen to her enticing of him. And when she tried to trap him in that vulnerable moment when they were alone, he fled and got out of the house. Now we'll come back to that and the practical things we can learn later. Joseph, God's chosen Savior and Lord, faces temptation and flees, and then he suffers unjustly. And James read this uh, brilliantly. You can almost sort of hear the drama and the spin and the lies and the spin and the lies and, and the kind of atmosphere building as uh, she... Uh, falsely accuses him. And her husband takes her side. And Joseph is thrown into prison. He has done nothing wrong. And he ends up being sold into slavery in Egypt. Then in Potiphar's house, things go well for him. And now again, he has done nothing wrong. And he ends up in prison. Now, Joseph must have experienced deep and real bleakness. Doubts. Questions. And in all probability, the time he spent in prison would have been years. But the Lord had not deserted him. God was with Joseph. And just as God raised him to a position of prominence and responsibility in Potiphar's house, God raised him to a position of prominence and responsibility in the prison. Now, you might just there might be a tiny little impulse of your heart to say, is God using him? Is this a kind of neat equation? It's a bit like the text at the beginning. It's a bit like the text at the end. Is he playing with this guy? And there are no pat answers in this text that answer the question, Why? What this text of Scripture says to us, verse 21, but the Lord was with him and showed his steadfast love and gave him favor 
The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge. He paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God was with Joseph. And then, lastly, in the top half, God will exalt Joseph. Remember who Joseph is. He is God's chosen man. He is God's chosen Savior and Lord. He will save God's people. And God's people will bow before him as their Lord. God will exalt his chosen man in the end. Notice these words, in the end. After all these years. And there are glimpses of the fact that God is going to, in the end, exalt his man. There are glimpses, shadows, shafts of light of that here in Genesis 39. Potiphar's house, verse 4, he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And in the prison, he was put in charge of all the prisoners. Just a glimpse of how God will exalt Joseph in the future. Now let me read to you a few verses from a little bit further on in the narrative. I'm going to read to you from a few chapters further on, and a lot more water has flowed under the bridge. This is Pharaoh to Joseph. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the lands of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow your knee to this man. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. And you could write large over these verses from a later chapter, God was with him. But it's so obvious that the writer doesn't write that. Where does he write God was with him? He writes it all over chapter 39. He writes it all over these early years when he was in Potiphar's house. He writes it all over these years in prison. God was with him. Now that's how this narrative has to teach us about Joseph, God's chosen Savior and Lord. And of course we can see in Joseph a pointer or a picture of Jesus who rescues God's people and before whom God's people bow down before as their Lord. And that is exactly what we are meant to see. Not, as I said, because this is a well-constructed story that points forward to Jesus neatly, rather because God has worked through history in ways that foreshadow Jesus. God's purpose was always to rescue, 
and rule through one man. God's purpose has always been for this one man to be rejected and to suffer before he is exalted. And this is all fulfilled supremely and once and for all in Jesus. So look at the list on the sheet with respect to Joseph and put in Jesus. God was with Jesus. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. Jesus suffered unjustly. God was with Joseph. The only difference is that while Jesus hung on the cross, God was not with him. Because he became the savior of humanity. But then God exalted him in his resurrection, in his exaltation, and in his ascension, and in his reign. Now, let me try and apply this now to us as Christians. A Christian is someone in whom the Spirit of Jesus dwells. So if you are a Christian, the Spirit of the living Jesus Christ dwells within you. And so the life and experience of Jesus and we see the life and experience of Jesus in the life and experience of Joseph applies to us. Not exactly. Because we are not God's chosen Savior and Lord. But the Christian life is patterned on Christ's life. And so we can take lessons from Joseph's life. And first and last, and the most important lesson for us tonight, is that if you are a Christian, God is with you. God is with you in times of prosperity, akin to Joseph prospering in Potiphar's household and akin to Joseph prospering in prison, if you could call that prosperity. Certainly akin to Joseph prospering as Pharaoh's prime minister. God is with you when you find yourselves in the bits of the shepherd Sam, the green valleys, the quiet waters. The Lord is with you. And God is with you in times of adversity, 
akin to the start of his time in Potiphar's household and his years in prison. Why am I there in a time of adversity? Is God testing me? Am I being tempted? Is God refining me? Now, this text doesn't answer these questions. This text tells us that God is with you. And that is so clear from this chapter, from the beginning and end of the narrative. God was with him, with you in prosperity. God is with you, with him in adversity. God is with you. And there must have been days when Joseph doubted that. There would have been days when he said, God is not with me, but God was with him. Let me encourage you with the heart of a pastor. As I have encouraged somebody personally this week, because I have the privilege of being their pastor. You cannot conclude and must never conclude that because you are experiencing adversity, God is not with you. Humanly, it is entirely understandable to conclude that He is not. The first ten years for Joseph after he was sold into slavery. Yet God was with him. Now, there are deeply shocking aspects to this narrative, especially when you compare it to chapter 38. Judah fell into every manner of temptation sexually, yet God blessed him with a son and heir. Judah, Joseph fled from temptation and ended up in prison. see what this narrative does? It, and it, and it's, a, it's I was saying in the prayer time before, we really got to concentrate tonight. So if you're asleep, wake up. And I'll repeat the last 20 minutes. Judah indulged in temptation. God gave him a son. God was with him. Joseph fled, ended up in prison. God was with him. This text takes you to a point in the Christian life that if you find it and accept it and trust God in it, it is extraordinary in its liberation. It does not answer the question, why? 
It does not answer the question, why was God astounding in his grace to Judah? Why did God take Joseph through difficulty after difficulty? Why did he look like at a point when he had come through it that he broke him again? Where does that leave you? With four words. God is with you. Now, if you're a regular in Chalmers, if you're part of the church family, you'll know that I'm not saying these things to you with anything other than than a pastoral concern that would, would love at times to know the answer, why? It's what hymn writers wrote. People like uh, uh, Spafford, when he wrote these words, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Or be still my soul. Did we have that tonight? No, we had that this morning. I'm getting confused. Be still, my soul. Or when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you. Your trouble to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. This is a, a sermon tonight on that text in Romans 8, all things work together for the good of those who love him, that would never dare quote the text at you. That's what this is saying. Now, let's spend a, a few minutes on temptation. You see that I've written, you will face temptation, you will fall, and you will uh, flee. Uh, for the Christian, temptation is a daily struggle, Perhaps particularly, but not just in the sexual arena, the temptation to act, temptation in the mind, and the heightened risk in a secular age of accessibility and acceptability. Here are some quick practical strategies from the passage that will help us when faced with temptation. It'd be so easy to preach the whole sermon on this. It's not primarily about this. Here are some practical. Why did Joseph resist temptation? Because of the kind of person he was. Think of the reasoning. He could have applied a, a different reasoning in verses 8 and 9. He might have reasoned from exactly the same set of circumstances. With me in charge, I can get away with it. I can arrange the schedules of all those under me. They won't know what's going on. Free from supervision. Two ways to behave. The way you choose reveals the person you are. Strategy two. Because he had a serious view of sin. How did he describe what he was tempted to do. He described it, verse 9, as this great wickedness. The devil will not whisper in your ear this great wickedness. Third, because he feared God. It would be a sin against Potiphar but ultimately a sin against God. 
sin at its most heinous is not ever at the social level. It is the spiritual level. Number four, he knew not to play with fire. He started finding reasons for going somewhere else to be out of her company. He knew this was just too dangerous. The person drawn to holiness will not try to see how close to wickedness he or she can get without being burned. And nowhere is this more true than in the sexual arena. If you are concerned for holiness, you will not play with fire. And the fifth strategy, Joseph was more concerned for his purity than his prospects. He wasn't stupid. It doesn't take too much to work out what a woman like this, a woman spurned, would do with his cloak left behind. But he runs. If it meant leaving his cloak behind, then so be it. Because in the end of the day, he was more concerned for his purity than his prospects. He maintained his purity, and he lost his prospects. But God was with him. Now, just get a hold of chapter 38 for a minute. God is with you when you fall. God is with you. But we pray tonight before the service, and there must be somebody here. And whatever it is has got a grip of your garment. And you're that close. And you need to flee. Flee from what it is. And I expect there is also somebody here, whether now or recently or long in the past, somebody has got a grip of your garment and you haven't fleed. Well, let God forgive you. That's why chapter 8, 38 is before chapter 39. I've had a great comment in one of the Bible commentaries. If you preach chapter 39 rightly, you will be getting people to look back to chapter 38. That's a great comment. You will suffer unjustly in the Christian life. This morning in 1 Corinthians 4, we are fools. We are weak. We are in disrepute. We labor. We are reviled. We are persecuted. We are slandered. We're stitched up by spin. But God is with you. And God will exalt you in the end. What does that mean for you and I? What it means for you and I is that we will be exalted in the end. We will reign with Jesus Christ in a new creation as princes and princesses of glory. 
forever. What will God do by way of fruitfulness from this period in my life when I am in prosperity? What will God do by way of fruitfulness from this period of my life when I am in adversity? Joseph had no idea and you and I don't either what you need to remember and there are other Bible passages that give you different answers to that question but Genesis 39's answer to that question you know by now what it is God is with you. Does that matter? It matters desperately much to someone here tonight that I know of. God is with you. The devil will take these words if you are in prosperity and twist them that God is blessing you. And if you are in adversity, the devil will take these words, God is with you, and twist them and say, God is not with you. God is with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these chapters in your word that bring comfort to our souls in times of adversity and bring humility to our souls in times of prosperity. Help us, Lord, to rest in Jesus because the words he is with you are not spoken to us from him. They are in us, reassuring us, answers to his prayers, because his Spirit is within us. And we have the mind of Christ living in us by his love and power controlling all that I do and say so we can say in response to the promise I am with you we can say yes God I know you are with me and so may we sing and mean the words, may I run the race before me, strong and brave, looking only to Jesus, as I onward go.